Recovery is stupendous. Achievable. Hope. Freedom. 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 Empowering. It's unique to everyone. It's a journey, not a destination. Getting a new lease on life. Finding restoration after you fall down. Recovery is having the freedom to enjoy life. For me, it was finding a way to really love myself. My recovery is possible in part because of my own sense of purpose. Welcome to Recovery Talks. Hello, everybody. I'm Leah Wetzel. Due to May 5th and International Missing, Murdered, and Indigenous Peoples Acknowledgement Day, we're doing a special edition Recovery Talks. Our first one happens to be very near and dear to me. Her story is, is very touching. And I just want to let our listeners, you know, give you a little heads up. Some of this is, is hard stuff. And as you know, we talk about some real things. We talk about the realities within mental health, addiction, substance abuse, recovery as an umbrella, recovery as a whole, you know, and there's solutions within recovery. And and so now that I rambled off for a little bit, I want to introduce to you my wonderful and dear, dear friend, Joanne Wake. Joanne, thanks for being here today. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and who you are. Uh, my name is Joe Wagner, Joanne to most. I am a mom of three kids, 2017 and 11. I am a widow. I live in East Glacier, Montana. And I um, am starting to do some advocacy work in Browning. So being a Blackfoot, being a role member yourself, or, you know, whether, you know, some of us, we're sovereign, no matter what our blood quantum is, but belonging to that, that confederated nation, what would you say about this epidemic there for our people? The MMIP epidemic? I feel like a lot of people think it's really super complex and I don't know that it is. You know, I, I feel like with the, with the MMIP stuff that we have going on on our reservation, whether it be, you know, murdered or missing people, it's, it's so prominent it's it's like so normalized which makes me so sad there's so many kids that um, are growing up on the reservation that have family members who have been murdered or you know family members who have been missing and it's it's like this weird normal thing for youth these days but I feel like on top of that there's like the normalcy of every everybody else on the reservation, adults of all ages from, you know, early 20s to elderly, that there's a normalcy there too. And I, I think that there's kind of um, a little bit of like, you know, Browning is a small town and um, our reservation is, is, it's fairly big. It's the biggest one on the, in Montana. So there's, there's a lot of little tiny towns all over, but it seems like there's a status that certain types of people are looking for, you know, especially in the drug life, there's a certain status that people are seeking 
and you know when you're when you're sober like life you don't seek that status you know so it's it's like where where this a weird place of being like wanting change a lot of people want change there a lot of people want to you know have their voices be heard but really don't have any way to get their voices out or or they're shut down by a lot of other people um you know on on all kinds of ends so so I mean I feel like it's just it's just going around and around in circles and nothing really gets changed. Right. And, and you would know this firsthand, you know, within the work that I've been doing just in the past year with the North Central Montana uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Task Force, you know, the highlight is the sex trafficking. The highlight is within what the rest of the world thinks is going on. But you yourself, us, we grew up in Helena. We grew up urban off the reservation. Uh, you married somebody from there. I married somebody from there. You guys lived in Browning. You're still living in Browning. You see it firsthand and, and you went through this. You have that life experience of, of going through this and coming out to the other side. Would you mind sharing that with us uh, where your passion really does derive from? Yeah. So like you said, I grew up in, in Helena. So I kind of have a balance of both worlds, the non-native world and the native world. Um, and because I married my husband who is Blackfeet, uh, was Blackfeet and um, grew up in Browning, I have a little bit different understanding, I guess, for like res life just in trying to help him navigate the the white world pretty much you know we I moved him away from everything that he knew to come and stay in Helena raise our kids in Helena and he did well he thrived he was such a good dad you know and so we we had come home for July 4th in 2017, and my husband, Shane LaPlante, was murdered. He was stabbed 27 times. And I know there's like a lot of, you know, there, there's a lot of violence in, in Browning, but Shane's case was so random, I guess you could say. We had, we had come down to, or come up to Browning to do the holiday with our family and you know we we had plans to spend the holiday weekend you know just hanging out enjoying our time with our family and, and just you know living life and we brought our kids with us my our two daughters and my son was you know, on a 10-day camping trip in down by Bozeman uh, and Shane and I had decided that we were going to do family stuff separate because you know, like my, my family's a little bit different than his family. And it just, it seemed to work better that way. So when he, he left, we, me and my girls went and did our own, you know, fireworks and just, you know, our own thing. And when I had, we had come back to East Glacier to go back to my mom's to go to bed for the night, I had stopped and checked in on Shane and he had decided that he was going to stay 
and later was um, after me and the girls went home, he had ended up at a wedding reception. I know a lot of people in Browning are really familiar with Shane's case because I, I made sure to promote it in the media. I made sure that there was lots of news coverage. And so a lot of people back home really know or very familiar with what, what happened to Shane. But I don't know that I ever really got to say, you know, what my side of the story was because I know a lot of people kind of tend to jump the gun and just make assumptions about what happened and stuff so I'm glad I get to do this but so he had he had interrupted a wedding reception and it had already been decided by the wedding party that there had been multiple fights and the next person who came onto the property who wanted to have any type of drama they were prepared well prepared with knives and Shane had come through the property and you know, as, as to the story of what led up to him being killed, we really don't know. Um, but he was, he was attacked by several people with knives. And like I said, stabbed 27 times. He held on for, I want to say almost two and a half, almost three hours after being stabbed in his neck, his back, his head. They had used knives so large that some of the knives had gone through his neck and out his, the front of his throat. Um, and so when we, when I got the call from, well, my mom had received the call from a police officer who's a part of our family um, and told us, you know, what she had told her what happened and, and said, you know, we need to go to the hospital. So my mom woke me up. We decided not to tell my girls what was going on and so I had made it to the hospital and I honestly I feel like you know we were just we just had a lot of angels around us at that time because there, there was a lot of things that had happened that weren't typical for Browning um, IHS hospital where we were allowed to go in the back with Shane and usually in a trauma situation they don't allow family to go back but I was allowed to be in the back with Shane and um, pray for him pray that, you know, I think in the beginning, I prayed that things were going to be different, that he was going to be okay. And I realized after a while and, and working in the healthcare field, I knew that after the, the beginning of CPR, that there, there's an end to it. You can only do CPR for so long before you have to stop. So I had to, I had to change my direction in prayer and ask for, for God to take him and take care of him. And you know, he, he passed at the hospital and I was probably the most devastating day of my life ever. Definitely not even probably like 100% for sure the most awful day of my life. But, you know, there's it's been so much that's happened since Shane's died that I, you know, I, I, I can't say that it was all in vain. You know, I, 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 was able to, I think because I grew up in Helena, I was able to navigate the justice system a little bit better than most people in Browning. There, there's not a lot of people that kind of stand up for themselves as they get, uh, they're fearful of law enforcement. They're fearful of investigators, you know, coming to talk to them. They, don't, they may be in fear of the other people involved. Me, I, I didn't care either way. I wasn't afraid of anybody. I just wanted answers. I just wanted 
to be told, you know, that people were doing their job. And what I found in the beginning was that no, nobody was willing to do their job. Nobody wanted to do anything. In fact, they, there was a lot of botched things that had happened during the investigation that kind of led us down a, a direction where there wasn't a lot of justice. Shane's killer received four and a half years in federal prison. And we had also fought through tribal courts because I don't think a lot of people know that you have the option to fight things in court, both tribally and you know federally or, or whatever jurisdiction has the hold of the case. You, if you're a native living on the reservation and the person who's been killed is, is an enrolled native, you have the right to request the tribal courts to take responsibility for any type of misdemeanor charges that could be applied to that person. And so when I found that out, I was like, yeah, we're going to tribal court too. Like, I, you know, that's just equally as important as federal court. So we started there. I had, they had brought in a special prosecutor to come and help us. Um, I say us and really honestly, it was, it was just me. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of help. There was, wasn't, I think a lot of people were really afraid to, you know, walk with me because nobody had really done that before, you know? And I, I couldn't really understand why until we got to our trial date in tribal court. And I remember the prosecutor came in, they brought a special prosecutor in from Billings and she said, um, you know, this is the first court hearing that we're having related to a murdered tribal member in this is the first time that we're doing this kind of trial in 80 years. And I remember her saying that and I just kind of like went in my head and rolled around and then left, you know, and I was like, that's crazy. And, you know, just kind of moved along. And in hindsight, now I'm like, I can't believe that, that, that she told me that I couldn't believe that in 80 years, they hadn't tried anybody in tribal court related to a murder. And so it was just kind of a, you know, for, to me, it, it was just kind of crazy. But then we had our opportunity to go to federal court and um, the federal judge found Shane's killer guilty of, I think it was manslaughter in the third degree. It was like the least this, it was the, a lesser crime than what, what he initially deserved and what the prosecutor said we were going to get, um, or not the, yeah, the prosecutor. I think in the beginning we had expected like a 15 year sentence, which really isn't anything, but I was thankful, you know, and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm okay with that, you know, and then come to find out he's found guilty by an all white jury of manslaughter in the third degree. They call it a crime in the heat of passion. Um, and so the defense is that, you know, I was so afraid for my life that I, I did this act. And honestly, like one person to stab somebody 27 times takes so much work, you know? And how is that a crime in the heat of passion? Like you'd think after like, five times, 10 times, but, you know, I'm going to stop because you, you got to come back around and have some sort of clarity, right? It just didn't make any sense. 
So he was um, found guilty and then sentenced to four and a half years, um, but he was also found guilty in tribal court and sentenced to a year and nine months in jail. So this June, he was set to be released from federal prison, but I've now had to advocate for my husband again and go back to the tribal courts to make sure that they have their warrant in place and that everything is you know, good to go so that when he gets out, um, now I found out it's, it, he'll be released in August and he won't have a release plan for pre-release or anything. So in August, they'll go take him from the prison and bring him to Browning to serve his year in nine months. But I've had to advocate for, for that to stay in touch with people that, you know, they probably think I'm a pain in their butt, but I'm okay with it. I'll be their pain as long as I need to, just as long as my, I just don't want my kids to see that you know, I'm not doing anything for their dad. You know, I want them to see that, like, I, I, he had my back, our whole relationship from the time I was 15 to, you know, 32 years old, he always had my back. So the least I could do is, you know, promote some sort of justice for him. Definitely. And I just want to acknowledge, um, take some, take a little moment here to acknowledge you and your work in your journey, the work you've done on yourself is, is tremendous. The growth I've seen in you is huge. And not many of us make it to this other side to say we're in recovery. And, and you can say that. And I just want to take time to also acknowledge and say his name as well, you know, Shane LaPlante. And the more I feel, the more we acknowledge those that have been murdered or maybe missing, you know, we're allowing their spirit to be protected and we're allowing them to continue on and be safe. And we're remembering them, remembrance of them. I know last year I reached out and asked you if I could say his name, but I just want to, you know, acknowledge the warrior spirit in you you know, being a single mom and navigating through, um, you know, one of our presentations with the North Central Task Force is on the jurisdictional base, how much work that needs to be done within legislation. You know, there's, there's laws passed that women and children are supposedly safe on the reservation, but not off. There's, there's laws that are passed who's making sure those are being followed through. You know, you sharing your story and you inviting you to that symposium last week, I invited Joanne to the second um, ever in the history of Montana, second state symposium, the attorney general and department of justice, county attorneys all the way down and um, well, I'll let you talk on it. They were just you know, praising this young woman for the work she's doing. And I wanna praise her and I, I wanna get this story out there for our listeners. But yeah, what did you think about that symposium? Honestly, I didn't know what I was really getting myself into. I didn't realize, so the symposium was for 
sex trafficking victims in the state of Montana and what can the, the legislature and government do in order to help uh, sex traffic victims. I, I guess I, I, I didn't know that there was such an issue um, in the state of Montana and in talking to a lot of those people that were there, you know, I kind of had a little bit more clarity and it kind of gave me a little bit of an idea. Um, you know, there's, there's so many different ways to be trafficked um, on the reservation, off the reservation. Um, but what I see is that, you know, in talking to some of those, the people that were there, that where, where I'm at in, on the reservation, trafficking is a lot more prominent than, than people think, because it can be, you know, moms trafficking their children for drugs, aunts, uncles, grandparents trafficking children for drugs, or, or men trafficking their, their women for drugs and money or whatever. I, I, I enjoyed that meeting because I felt like after going through everything that I went through to find justice for Shane, I finally felt like there were people uh, that had the positions to promote change in Montana. I finally had their ears to listen to me. You know, when I was fighting for, for Shane, I had to speak to FBI agents who didn't, they could care less what I was going through. I had to speak to detectives. Um, through the BIA office that just did not care. They wanted me to shut up. They wanted me to keep my mouth shut and take what they were going to give me. And, you know, because I was raised <clears throat> in Helena, I watched, you know, I mean, we were so close to the Capitol there. I mean, we were in the Capitol, you know, we were so close to so many people, um, you know, going to school with legislators' kids and, you know, the governor's kids for that matter. And there were in my head, I, like growing up in Helena and knowing how the justice system worked, it didn't make sense to get pushed to the side on my own reservation as a voice that didn't need to be heard. And I, I couldn't take that, you know? So, so after meeting with those people at that symposium, I just thought like, how, how good is God? Like, how, how lucky am I to be able to sit here and talk to the Missoula County attorney, the, the lead prosecutor for, for Missoula County, uh, several FBI agents, the Department of Justice, the head guy for, from the Department of Justice to sit with us and talk with us at lunch and just be able to hear what I went through. Um, because I, even though, you know, I, I'm speaking on behalf of my husband's murder, it all lines up the same way, you know, MMIP, it murdered and missing people go hand in hand. And usually when there's a missing person, they are either murdered or they are trafficked, you know? So, so it does go hand in hand. Um, and the justice system will never, you know, I mean, it's always going to run the way that it does, you know? So it's, it's well, in hopes that after the symposium, things in Montana will change, but I'm saying, you know, legally, if a person goes missing, the process is the same as if a person is murdered, there's an investigator who looks into everything and, you know, things kind of move forward. But um, I, I was just glad to hear, have people hear my voice on a different level and to have a totally different understanding for what 
the struggles are. And I, I felt like it was really important to tell a lot of people there that, you know, this, this isn't just like a one, once in a while thing. This, this happens all over. Like right now in, on our reservation, we have three missing people. And in the last five years since Shane's been killed, there's been numerous murders to happen on our reservation. And it seems like as time goes by, they're just more and more gruesome, you know? Yeah, just kind of let our listeners in a little bit about that symposium. So within the work that I do with the North Central uh, Montana Human Trafficking and MMIP Task Force, the Attorney General's DOJ, Alex, I'll say Alex, shout out, uh, reached out to me. They wanted to highlight our task force because the work that we're doing here locally in Great Falls uh, collaboratively as a community, our numbers are, are popping up as, you know, these guys are, are doing, some, you know, making some change, doing a little difference, uh, making some difference. And uh, I kept asking my boss, why are they reaching out to me? You know, yes, I'm I'm the vice president, but that's just the title. You know, you really my boss made me made me think about it. You know, I was led to the task force by the detective that handled my case. Within my story to recovery, there's human trafficking in and throughout from the age of 19 on. And I was just lucky enough to be able to be where I was and have the support that I did to make it out on the other side myself and watching Joanne and many of my other family members and friends going through the things that they're going through. I knew in my heart that Joanne was going to be making a difference. And so it was invite only. And I thought, you know what, Joanne just happened to reach out. It was like a God thing. Reached out and I was like, hey, let's Let's introduce you to some people. And um, you, you would have thought we were movie stars. They were literally <laughs> lined up waiting to talk to us. And so going forward, Joanne and I are gonna help support advocacy and peer support needed within MMIP organizations. And so, Joanne's out there doing independent work on the Blackfeet Reservation, advocacy work. Just while we rode down there and back, I don't even, I can't even count how many time, how many people she was answering to, reaching out to, offering support. And I'm like, dang girl, you're doing homegrown natural peer support. And so we're gonna team up her, her auntie Patty, Montana's Peer Network and see, you know, Tara Bradford out of out of uh, Gallatin County and some other folks. We're gonna see what we can do. So to our listeners, be watching out for the name Joanne Wagner on the Blackfeet Reservation. She's uh, definitely on the rise. And to all of you that are out there. There's so many relatives out there that are hurting because they've had, you know, missing family gone for a while. You know, those that you know that have been murdered, 
continue to acknowledge them and acknowledge your own spirit and reach out and, and, and get support. You know, there's a lot of solution within recovery. And there are folks turning that intergenerational trauma into a new age intergenerational healing. And so we just ask that you join us in these efforts. There's a lot of strength in numbers. And again, Joanne, thank you so much for coming on. One more thing, if somebody's wanting to, I don't know, support your efforts, donate, do anything like that, how can they reach you? Um, you can reach me by email at joewags2020 at gmail.com, J-O-W-A-G-Z 2020 at gmail.com. There you have it, folks. And uh, this is Leah from Montana's Peer Network, also the Vice President for the North Central Montana Human Trafficking and Missing and Murder Indigenous Task Force. We ask that you wear red May 5th. Um, this might be airing a little later, but you know, maybe thinking forward for next year as well. And Joanne will be coming back. We'll be checking in on her and getting an update. So thanks again. Thanks for joining us for Recovery Talks. We'll talk to you next week. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works. Recovery is possible. Recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery is possible.